Hi guys, welcome to the Macros Bodybuilding and Powerlifting Podcast. I am here with a fantastic guest again this week. I've been trying to arrange this for, I think it was before Christmas trying to arrange it, but I'm so glad to have finally got Mike Zordos on, who I am absolutely sure the majority of our audience will know. So just to give a brief introduction, uh, Mike has a PhD in exercise physiology. Um, He is the assistant professor in exercise science at Florida Atlantic University and his research is focused on optimizing periodization and program design methods. And he's also a powerlifter, a powerlifting coach, and I believe bodybuilding coach as well, and a family man. So is there anything else you'd like to add to that? Uh, Sorry, Mike. (laughs) No, that's it, man. No worries, man. That's it. Uh, I just want to say thanks for sticking with me. Like like you said, you tried to get a hold of me around Christmas time, and uh, I'm not always the easiest to get a hold of, so I, I appreciate the opportunity and still wanting to have me on the show. No, yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I, I think maybe your name isn't as well-known as the DUP might be, but a lot of people have heard about daily undulating periodization, and I think it's important that you get the opportunity to share what it really is Um, And so people can actually take away and use it to the best effect because I think a lot of people hear these sort of concepts, these training methods, and they try and implement it maybe with not the best knowledge. So I think initially, if we can just very briefly, because I think most of the audience should have a grasp, just give the absolute, if you can give the basics behind what you see daily undulating periodization as being, if you could define it. Absolutely. So in the most uh, simplistic terms, uh, daily undulating periodization is altering either the training phase, meaning hypertrophy, strength, or power, or the number of repetitions you're doing from session to session. So it's can really, and this concept is so adaptable, which we'll discuss. But if you take somebody who's simply training three times per week, because this is the most basic example, and on Monday they do uh, hypertrophy type training, meaning moderate repetitions, moderate intensity. On Wednesday, they do power type training or speed type training. And then on Friday, they do strength type training. That would be classified as daily undulating periodization. The other way to classify it would be if you didn't fit one of those specific phases necessarily, but you just simply altered the repetitions and you did, let's say, 10 repetitions on Monday, eight repetitions on Wednesday, and six repetitions on Friday. In that example, both the 10 and eight repetitions really fit into, quote, the hypertrophy type of range, but it would still be classified as daily undulating periodization Uh, because you would alter the repetitions from session to session. That would bring me to a point that I'm sure we're going to get to later. Um, I can get to now if you like, uh, but where I would actually clarify between daily undulating periodization and what I like to call daily undulating programming, um, because I think one of those constitutes programming uh, much more so, and I think there's a huge difference between programming and periodization that people uh, have a huge misconception of. No, yeah, brilliant. I think I've heard you talk about kind of the programming element and maybe have called it daily undulating patterns or patterning um, where you have like a focused block of training with like you said of hypertrophy and you fit within kind of the traditional hypertrophy rep ranges and undulate between that and as we're talking about daily undulating periodization what would you say is the kind of the biggest benefit to to the system what have you found to be kind of why do you think it works so well because it, it certainly has worked really well for a lot of people Sure. So I'll uh, kind of get to that part in just a moment and just to back up between the programming and, and periodization. Sure. So programming is what I like to call short term or within microcycle or within mesocycle variation of repetitions. Periodization are long term trends. So if we were to think of a volume, uh, volume over time in a macrocycle, volume would go from high to low over that macrocycle. 
Now, it wouldn't necessarily look exactly in this linear line. It would rather look something more like this, going up and down, up and down, decreasing. Those short-term waves, that's programming. But the long-term trends is what periodization is. So here to now parallel into the second part of your question, why I think and based upon the data and would believe that having those short-term microcycle and mesocycle variations in programming or daily undulating programming is a good idea is because let's say you want to go from uh, one block that has higher repetitions and higher volume to an intensity block after that. Let's say in those higher repetitions, if you're not having any alteration of repetitions throughout the week and you have one block and you do solely do 10 repetitions around 65 to 70%. And then you wanna to go to another block and focus on strength and do four repetitions at about 85%. That's a huge change in the amount of repetitions and the amount of intensity from block to block. Thus, that's a huge shock to the neuromuscular system. Also, if you spend all of that time doing, let's say 10 reps, you might actually not get certainly a great strength adaptation, maybe not lose a strength adaptation, but you're not going to be very efficient with heavy load. So especially if you're a power lifter, you never get, want to get too far away from that. So if we keep the same trend of periodization, but in the programming model, instead of doing, let's say, all 10s throughout the week, we have a frequency of two to three days a week, and we just have the programming change of 10s one day, 8s one day, and 6s one day, but we keep sub-maximal intensities so that our stress per set or our RPEs are low, consistent to be able to treat volume, that's going to allow us, if we're doing, let's say, 10.86, to allow us to increase the intensity throughout the week, maybe to up to 75%. So when we go to the next block and, and want to do fours at 80, 85%, we're not that far away from it. We can make that jump pretty easily, and then we can gradually increase the RPEs or the stress percent as well. So that's the that hopefully gets to both of those things, which answers how programming fits into periodization and distinguishing between those, and then also the benefits of doing something like altering repetitions within a week, because it allows you to step down from block to block much easier without getting too unspecific, if you will. Mm -hmm. So effectively, you get to hold on to some of kind of the stuff that you want to hold on to whilst transitioning nicely towards where you want to go, in a sense. Absolutely, and as we know from quite a lot of data over the past few years, there's no really mechanistic benefit to, let's say, 8, 10, 12 reps for hypertrophy. It's rather a practical benefit of the time being time efficient. So we can achieve that hypertrophy by stepping down within a week to, let's say, even six or five reps. We might have to add sets to be able to achieve the same volume. But as long as we're matching volume, it's going to be the same. Also, we do know that with higher intensities, you're going to be able to gain more strength. So if we can still match that volume in a, in a volume block to be able to achieve the hypertrophy that we need to, but not get too far away, or at least more than one or two times a week far away from higher intensities, that's going to be a much easier transition as we go down to an intensity block. So if I think of throughout a macro cycle, I think of you know volume in a wave pattern and then intensity in a wave pattern going up. The point before they cross where volume is still higher that's where you're in the preparatory phase and you're running volume blocks. And the point after is when you're in the peaking phase and you're running intensity blocks. And in the most basic sense, we just combined undulating programming into a linear macro cycle into block periodization. So these concepts are not mutually, mutually exclusive. Uh, and uh, hopefully, I think actually over the past year or so, more people are understanding this. Um, but that's the theoretical structure that I would break that down. And then there's going to be an inverse relationship between volume and RPE. So the, the higher the volume, the lower the RPE per set because volume is predicated on repeated efforts. So if you hit a 10 RPE on the first set, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to decrease the load and that's most likely going to sacrifice volume. Mm -hmm. No, that's fantastic. And I guess is, um, 
A question I'd have with daily undulating periodization, is it very much undulating within intensities or rep ranges or can you undulate other aspects? So maybe you're undulating just volume. Could that be an aspect of daily undulating? 100% you can. So um, one of my colleagues a few years ago said to me, you know, periodization, most people think of it in terms of, you know, repetitions and that sort of thing in in a a short-term microcycle. Uh, But periodization can really mean anything. It's just manipulating those variables in our sense, it's manipulating the variables to peak for a competition at a certain time. And there's infinite ways to manipulate those variables. So you can certainly have a high volume day followed by a low volume day followed by a high volume day. And now you're just, you're periodizing, you're programming your volume within that microcycle, um, which is different than the long-term trends that we're talking about. But absolutely all of those things, there's actually a good study that just came out that uh, is published ahead of print now in JCR. And it it shows uh, how performing a power or explosive type day will increase performance maybe 48 hours later, which I think is good evidence if you have a heavier day and then you slot that lighter day in between, not only will it help you um, instead of performing a heavy day 48 hours from, let's say, a perjury type day, but it'll allow you to kind of prime the system, if you will, to perform better, let's say, 48 hours later. So I think there's pretty good evidence to kind of structure or periodize volume that way as well. So if you're doing a volume block, you don't have to have equal volume on all on both training days per week or all three training days per week. You can certainly structure that accordingly. And in, in a practical sense, I actually did that on this last block where I had only about 35 minutes to train one day. Mm-hmm. So I slotted a much lower volume in day for to get frequency, but I waited most of my volume at the beginning of the week. And then at the end of the week, I had my, my heavier day. So I had the most rest. Um, but I still had that third day of frequency. So I had the same volume as I would have as if I had the normal amount of time, hour and a half to train each day. Um, but I just slotted it differently throughout the week to account for, for time. So that's the kind of thing that you have to have, you have to have an appreciation for science, but you have to have practical experience yeah. to be able to write programs in this field because no scientific study can tell you that. You have to understand the concepts and then integrate things accordingly. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And I think that's something when we see kind of high frequency programs, like a lot of people see these very high frequency programs and they don't appreciate that there's these undulations within it, whether it be repetitions or whether it be volume. And sometimes it is kind of like a fatigue management session or like you said, like a speed power session that can actually kind of potentiate the final session in the week. So I think having the understanding that daily undulating periodization is so much more than just kind of a singular concept is so important for people to grasp. And I think you've kind of actually touched on it a little bit. And I was interested to hear, as you are a coach yourself, how, and you do coach powerlifters and bodybuilders, which is the target audience of this show. How does your, do you program very differently for each audience or for each client? How does that kind of differ? Because obviously bodybuilders are mainly all about trying to grow muscle and then powerlifters are very much focused on strength for the most part. Sure. So it's a, it's really a great question. And, you know, periodization from a, prospect of decreasing volume and increased intensity over time is much more important for a powerlifter in the long run, right? They're looking to peak their strength on a certain day and a bodybuilder is looking to peak their physique, if you will. So for a bodybuilder, I would say the main difference, actually, I'll back up for a second. Uh, There's really two main differences between them. The first is that for a bodybuilder, I'm going to spend much more time running volume and certainly not as much time running intensity blocks to peak strength or testing 1RM because it's just not specific to them. If they enjoy testing 1RM, it's something that they want to do, uh, which actually there's such a huge trend in bodybuilders over the past three, four, five years to be able to do these things. That's great. We can do it. But I'm going to spend more time utilizing uh, volume for them. 
then the other thing is obviously assistance work. There's going to be a much greater magnitude of assistance work, and I might keep to allow that bodybuilder to be able to recover the volume on the main lifts a little bit lower than I would for a powerlifter, and then achieve some much more of their volume through assistance work since they're doing such a high amount of volume also to keep them healthy as well. Uh, so it's the amount of time spent doing volume blocks versus intensity blocks and it's going to be more in a bodybuilder. And then the amount of assistance work that we're doing with the bodybuilder is certainly going to be greater, target all the muscle groups uh, from different angles and so forth. Then there are a lot of other things that come into play in terms of practice. I will say, um, and uh, you can stop me if I deviate too far from the question, but one thing in a bodybuilder that uh, uh, you know I like to do and utilize and try to drive home with a lot of people is that you don't need to be so concerned with increasing load every week. Maybe sometimes you add a rep every week, uh, especially during prep, right? You're not going to be adding uh, load to the bar each week. So oftentimes I might have, let's say, a top set where I give the individuals a range and I say perform somewhere between 10 and 15 repetitions with this load. And that will fluctuate a little bit each week depending on energy levels, depending on how they're dieting and so forth. Then based upon that, we can perform much more volume after that at a kind of a decreased RPE to allow them to achieve their volume. But we can get one set that's at a higher RPE, that first set or so, to allow them to maintain some sort of strength levels uh, as they're going through prep. Uh, another thing that a strategy is I also like to utilize with bodybuilders, even though we're spending time in volume blocks, as they're dieting, if I wanted them to be able to maintain their volume, but their strength is decreasing so much, that means it's gonna be hard to maintain some volume because they're gonna have to decrease the load. So I might have them work up once or twice a week to, let's say, a bench press, a single at an 8 to 9 RPE to achieve and keep some of those neuromuscular adaptations. Not because strength is important in a direct sense for the stage, but if they can keep that, that's going to allow the load they use on their volume to maintain a little bit higher than it would otherwise. Thus, it's going to be easier to achieve volume. Uh, so that's another strategy that I like to use with bodybuilders, uh, even as they're getting into prep. With We've seen with some success so far. But again, that's another example of having the practical experience as well as looking at research. No, that's really interesting. I think it's important that people realize you can kind of use daily undulating periodization for bodybuilders and powerlifters. And again, it's just applying it specifically to that individual and their needs and wants. And uh, I, I find it interesting. Do you ever find you use daily undulating periodization for more than just kind of the big compound lifts? Do you find you're using yeah. it for the, the assistance movements as well? Yeah, I certainly do. And, uh, you know, one of the, there was a meta-analysis that came before on periodization and non-periodized programs. And it demonstrated that uh, periodized programs had a moderate to large effect uh, for strength and hypertrophy better than non-periodized programs. Uh, but the main reason they said that this existed is because periodized programs were allowing for more volume. So essentially, when you structure your training variables, right, you're going to allow yourself to be able to improve volume and intensity in these things much better over time. So if you just go in blindly for a month or so and you do a non-periodized program versus a periodized program and you try to equate for volume, you're probably not going to see any difference, right? It's probably not going to matter very much. Mm -hmm. But over the long term, structuring these things appropriately certainly seems to matter a great deal. So because of that, I try to use the concepts with almost all of the lifts. Now, you do run into a little bit of a problem. If I want to do, let's say, a bent over rows for my bodybuilder, and I have, let's say I'm in a volume block. So remember, a volume block is predicated on repeated efforts, so you're going to have higher repetitions to achieve that volume. Mm -hmm. And so let's say I'm training three days per week, and I have 10, 8, and 6 in that volume block. 
And now I do that for four weeks. Uh, I taper, I intro, and that's a whole nother conversation. And then I go to another block, and I now do uh, eight reps on Monday, six reps on Wednesday, and four reps on Friday. Well, if I do that, and I do that on bench press, and I do that on squat, uh, but on bent over row, which is one of the assistance work I'm using for the bodybuilder, if I do that, well, am I gonna do four reps on bent over row, and then the next re- next block do two reps on bent over row as I'm decreasing the repetitions? Probably not. Mm-hmm. So what I like to do is, if I have a 10-8-6 block, I like to stay somewhere between two and three repetitions higher on the assistance movements than I would on the main movements. So that way when I step down, I'm not really going below six reps on these sorts of things. Or if I'm using something like a bent over row, I might only do that twice a week and then program, let's say, a one-arm dumbbell row or something in the middle of that week. So that way my repetitions are always staying within a a kind of a normal range, you know, six or above for those assistance type of movements. So that's a good way to get it. Because if you try to mimic exactly what you're doing to the main list, you know, you're going to have yourself programming doing two set, two reps on bicep curls. And, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. No. Yeah, definitely. So you're keeping kind of the, the everything specific to the goal that you're training towards at that specific time, which I think is really important for people to take away because, yeah, some people might... I mean, yeah, like you said, just some things intuitively we know you can't go that low in reps with some isolation works. You just have those at a slightly higher number. And maybe you just, well, I'm not saying that you do this, but you might put them as lower volume and focus more on the strength work in that period of time or something along those lines. Um, In terms of kind of misconceptions that you see with daily undulating periodization, what kind of the the common ones you see coming out that you kind of wish that you could just be like, no, I wouldn't, I don't want people to make that mistake anymore. This is how it it should be. Do you see that a lot? Is there like, do you wish you could kind of tell everyone something, kind of lay it out now if if there is? Sure, there's a lot. I'm grabbing a pen and paper because I'm thinking of things and I don't want to, while you're talking, I want to make sure I can take some notes um, so I don't forget to say anything. So I think one, there are a lot of misconceptions. And to be honest, it's probably my fault because I don't really do the internet very much. So uh, there's probably questions out there that I could easily answer. Um, but since I'm not, I'm not online too much, I don't get to do that. However, it's a fantastic question. It's good to address. I think the most common one, actually, there's two words that I use with all of my students before every class I teach every semester. Those two words are conceptual and integration. And we need to understand research from a conceptual perspective because I would never go into a research study and take that exact training program and give that to my client or give that to myself. If you do that program and you're the similar status of the individuals in the study, you're probably going to get about the mean change. But remember, that study had to make concessions for feasibility of research. So, for example, um, in studies I've done, we always squat and bench press on the same day. I don't usually do that all the time in real life, but that's the difference of the researchers and the subjects being in the lab six days a week as opposed to three days per week. So it's just a simple example. So that's how you have to understand conceptually. I promise I'll answer your question in a minute. And then um, integration is what we talked about, integrating all of these concepts together um, and integrating the programming and periodization models together, incorporating autoregulation strategies into a periodized concept, and then utilizing, like we just said, uh, maybe a heavy single during prep to maintain strength once a week and then doing your volume work after that because that should maintain strength, which means you're going to be able to use a higher load, which means it's going to be easier to achieve a much greater amount of volume. So misconceptions are one that people just don't understand from a conceptual perspective and integrate. They think that 
you know, I'm sure people have joked and heard, you know, there's, you know, the program, the DUP, the block periodization, whatever it is. And we can go get and we can go to, you know, uh, some magical website, you know, plug in our, uh, our 1RMs uh, and our SAT score, and uh, that'll spit out our, uh, our program for us. And that's certainly not the case. And if you do find a website that does that, then you should run as far away from that website as possible. Right. So, uh, but another misconception is that people think that there's a fixed frequency of three days per week. And, and people think, oh, I'm going to do, you know, undulating periodization. And so that means I train three days per week. That means I squat and bench press, uh, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And uh, I do, you know, hypertrophy here, strength here, power here. And that's what it is. The, the best part about a concept like this is that it adapts to anything. Right. If you only have two days a week to train, then that's perfect. Let's say so if you if you train, let's say Monday, Wednesday and Friday on Monday, you do uh, 10 reps on Wednesday, you do seven reps and on Friday you do four reps. But all of a sudden your schedule changes and now you can only train two days a week. So you train Mondays and Thursdays. You know, the, the reaction most people have is I can't I can't train like this anymore. I got to go find, you know. Uh, some five by five program on the internet. Not that there's anything wrong with the five by five program, but it's just that they think they have to leave this. So if you were doing ten, seven, and four, well, now you can only train Monday, and Thursday. No problem. Mondays you do tens. The first Monday you do ten. Then Thursday you do seven. The next Monday you do four. Then the next Thursday you do ten. Right? It's it, you just it just takes one. I, I call a completion of you know those three uh, types. You know one whole repetition pattern. Um, ten, seven, and four. I would call that an undulation pattern. So it might just take you. A week and a half to complete one undulation pattern than a week. It doesn't matter, right? It, it's not as much frequency, but it, the misconception is that it's a fixed thing. Mm -hmm. But in reality, this adapts to any concept or to any uh, frequency that you have or any time frame that you have. And then within that, you can then undulate the volume if you need to. Uh, and then you can use a flexible template. There's a couple papers out on using a flexible template. There's one recent one from uh, uh, from Ryan Calhoun, who did his master's at, at USF and has done his PhD at Oklahoma State now. And he showed that a flexible template increases adherence to training. So they had a one hypertrophy session, one strength session, and one power session within a week. And one group had to perform in the order of hypertrophy, power, and strength. The other group had to perform all three within a week, but could choose the order. So the other thing is that this is a way to now incorporate autoregulation into that undulating periodization concept, if you will. And if you only have two days a week to train, in there, you know, it, it's it's no problem. So are you still there? Yeah, we cut out Thank for a minute. We're fine. <laughs> We're back. Okay, cool. So yeah, there's all of those ways to do it. So it's people thinking that it's this fixed concept. It has to go with this fixed frequency. Uh, when in reality, the on the most basic sense, it's altering repetitions or volume or intensity, one of them or all of them from session to session. And that is it. However you want to do that within that construct, there's a million different ways. We could, you and I could sit down and each rate 100 programs for 100 different individuals all based upon that concept and none of them would be identical, but they could all be correct. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's fantastic in that there is no, yeah, fixed one way to do things. I think, I mean, for example, I think at the moment I'm training my biceps four times a week and I'm doing them kind of in an eight reps up to 15 reps and kind of undulating between that, having more sets on some days, less on other days. 
um, and kind of like hitting them hard, allowing them to recover and then hitting them hard again. And it's kind of, that's my biceps. Whereas a lot of people will just think about like squats and deadlifts and bench press, but it can be applied to so many different things. So. And, and, if, and if you're a bodybuilder and you have physique goals, well, let's say for a lower body, the squat might be your main movement that you utilize, but all exercises essentially have equal importance because if, if you're not placing that same importance, you know, on your, your biceps or triceps or back or whatever you're going to need for the stage, well, you're doing yourself a huge disservice. Um, it's great if your squat is progressing in terms of strength, but if that's going to progress in that mode, why not try to use some of those strategies for the other muscle groups like you're doing? And, and the other way to really look at this too is oftentimes, you know, if you're lower trained, you can make progress on much lower volume. One of the ways to be able to improve the amount of volume is by increasing your frequency. So if you're training two times a week and you want to make the jump to three times a week, perhaps the best way to do that isn't to just add another day of volume. It's to add a lighter or power type session, right, to allow you to adapt to that frequency. And then once you do that for a mesocycle, then you can bump up the volume of that session to have three, you know, more kind of typical type of days, if you will. Um, but undulating the volume, as you've been bringing up and as we've discussed, is a fantastic way to add an extra day of frequency if you're trying to move up to the next level of frequency. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's fantastic. And I think that's something I remember reading if people have read um mark ripito's practical programming and he had some sure, designs yeah. where he had like heavy medium and light days and once you got through kind of your heavy and medium days you can add in a light day and it's just like we're talking about for hypertrophy at least kind of that additional volume is going to be what we're wanting so i think that's that's really really cool to hear and did you have any other misconceptions or common kind of mistakes people make or was that kind of where you wanted to that kind um, of hits them I'm, sh I'm sure there are others. The only uh, uh, one I think I'd like to bring up off the top of my head isn't necessarily related to just solely, um, you know, undulating programming, if you will. But more in general is when people are, are training in, in volume blocks or for really most of the macro cycle, you don't need to train to failure. And you can make progress with RPEs, meaning repetitions in reserve. I'm sure most uh, listeners are familiar with that. Uh, you can make progress on, on much lower RPEs than I think you, you would otherwise tend to go towards. So um, be cautious uh, with going too close to failure too often. I don't think you need to do that. I would also say be cautious. We, we talked so much about volume in, in this industry, um, which is great. I mean, there's a lot of evidence to suggest how key volume is, and I, I agree with that as well. Uh, but the two things I would say is be careful how much volume you're structuring in one day. It's not about volume in a day. It's about volume over a week or over a mesocycle or over time. Also, I, if you can make progress on lower on, – if you can make progress on, uh, on two amounts of volume and that progress is about the same, choose the lower amount. I don't jump to too much volume too soon. So there, I don't I don't really see any reason to do that. I see that as a regressive type of strategy. I see it as a strategy for injury. Um, and I see it as you adapting to that volume maybe before you need to. Um, there's also evidence that in the short term, a higher amount of volume doesn't lead to greater improvements in strength and hypertrophy than a more moderate or lower amount of volume. So that's going to be dependent upon training age and what you're doing. So although that's not related just solely to undulating programming, structure volume accordingly throughout the week. It's not about volume in one day and improve your volume over time. If you have a lower training age and you can make progress on lower volume, why wouldn't you want to do that? Take advantage of it. Cool. No, I think that's a really good thing to have in mind. I think a lot like volume is a really kind of it is like a buzzword at the moment and people try yeah. and do as much as possible, whereas it's about kind of doing as much as 
kind of what you need rather than as much as possible. And you, you've got to be able to recover from it. And like of you course. said, if you can't recover from it, you're going to regress. You're going to injure yourself. Um, and actually, I guess in a related way, and I, I, I wonder how you construct your deloads within this. Do you have, do you use deloads within your kind of da daily undulating periodization program if your clients and things like that? Sure. I, I absolutely do. I don't, I don't use the term deload a lot, not because mm -hmm. it's a, it's a bad term, uh, but because when I'm discussing with clients, um, I, I find sometimes they think deload, I can take yeah. it easy. I'm going to relax. So I call, I use the term uh, taper and intro week uh, pretty exclusively. And that way when it's an intro week, um, you know, it, I'm, I'm describing how it's building them up for the week to come. They need to focus. They need to do this. In reality, it's easy. RPEs are four or five. They're crushing it, uh, but it allows them to do that. So if I am going to, first of all, the principles of a taper in a basic sense are to uh, decrease volume, but maintain intensity and maintain frequency. Um, at least, you know, for the most part, you're going to maintain intensity and frequency. Mm -hmm. So I'll to look at if I have a block and let's say um, it's a four week block and that week they're training eight reps on Monday. Let's say just take squat, for example. And again, as we've covered, everybody knows you don't have to train three times a week. It's not a fixed setup. It's just a very easy example to explain. Somebody's training eight reps on Monday, six reps on Wednesday, four reps on Friday. And the intensities on average are about 70 percent, 75 percent and 80 percent. So and then let's say they add about two and a half kilos per week. So the average intensity ends up being about 72%, uh, 77%, 82%. Okay, so they do that for four weeks. Then in the taper session, um, what I'll try to do is that the average intensity uh, would be uh, 77% if we average those together at the end of the training block. So that means that I'll probably have on day one, uh, on Monday, them taper and them train around 74%. Uh, and then on day two on Wednesday, uh, have them uh, taper and train uh, around 80%. And so that way the average intensity would be 77%, which was the intensity of the block because I'm going to keep frequency intensity the same. Mm -hmm. Drop volume, maybe 50 to 60%, and then have them do some sort of test maybe on Friday. Cool. Uh, and that's how I would set up that taper. I also would say that you don't have to test, right? Yeah. If I go through a training block with somebody and it's clear that strength isn't going to increase that much, and there's no reason to test if you kind of know where it's going to be or it's going to be a little bit demoralizing for you or for your client. Set yourself up to success, right, or to succeed, excuse me. So I would always set myself up to succeed in that way. Um, oftentimes I'll do – I don't like to run blocks for too, too long anymore, maybe past six weeks or so, yeah. um, just to kind of be cautious and avoiding injury. So, But if I want to run, let's say, like a 10-week block, I might run five weeks and then run what I call an intracycle uh, uh, taper, an intracycle intro. And so I will decrease the volume and I'll decrease the load maybe if I'm in week five, whatever I do. Um, let's say I'm doing 100 kilos for, for uh, eights on Monday, 110 kilos for sixes on Wednesday, and then uh, 120 kilos for fours on Friday on, on whatever the lift is. Each day for the following week six, which would be the intracycle uh, intro or taper, I would decrease the load each day by 10, uh, about 10 kilos and then drop a repetition from where I was the previous week. RPE should be really low. It would be easy. And then in the following week, which is now week seven, I would go back to where I was week five and I'll repeat the week and then I'll progress from there. Um, again, that's not, that's not magic. Um, that's not like, hey, you can pull up this study and it tells you exactly to do that. Um, but it's something that I think using the data and using the experience, 
Uh, it allows us to be able to structure things appropriately and it allows us. And so that's one way I would use intras or deloads. I just don't use the term. It's very similar and allows me to extend the block without doing testing uh, and keep myself in that theme of volume or intensity. I know that was a lot. I hope that made sense. No, I think I just wanted to make sure that people realize that even though kind of daily undulating periodization can be very effective for kind of getting results and it can be a good way, like we talked about, you can have those lighter days to allow for fatigue to come down. It's not like it's that is the, the single week is that's just what you can continue to do forever. There has to be periods at which you do have these tapers, you do kind of come back. Um, there's going to be times at which volume needs to come down. So, awesome. Yeah. Okay. So, just in like a uh, a general sense, right? If you have, I'm gonna write this here. But so, if you think of this, you're right on the money, Stephen. I'm glad you brought this up because people hear a concept like that then too, and they think it's like exclusive of breaks, exclusive of tapers, exclusive of intros, and that's certainly recipes for disaster in a lot of ways. So if I were to break things down, if you were to have a, um, let's say a four-week mesocycle, and this would be your volume block. For those listening, Mike has a whiteboard and he's uh, getting us some imagery going. So it's, no, it's going to be good. So yeah, if you want to check out it on YouTube, do. Um, we're trying to give some kind of, uh, talk the visuals. Cool. At least I'm trying. No, no, so, it's good. Cool. So I'm trying to write this in the air, so my handwriting is extra bad, but uh, we'll see if, uh, so can that, is that uh, readable to you, Steve? Intro microcycle, intro microcycle and then a volume block, yeah. Yeah, intro microcycle and then a volume block. And then underneath that, I'll, I'll put it on there now, is let's say a taper. Yeah. So if you can see in that sense, is it all on there? Yeah, intro microcycle sandwich. Well, a volume block sandwiched by an intro microcycle and then a taper to finish it off. Okay, cool. So it's a little harder than I thought to be able to see that on the screen. Yeah. So that's the only one we'll do. But um, hopefully that visual at least helped a little bit for you guys. And yeah. that if we think of that volume block as let's say four weeks or so, well, that's going to be you know that's going to be the sandwich, if you will. And on the outside, there's going to be an intro and there's going to be a taper. I do that with every single block that I write. I, I always run an introductory cycle. How many, and the reason I do this is it's just being cautious, right? There's no reason to risk injury if you don't have to. And we've all been there, right? We've all been there where we've written out a training block and we've calculated out, all right, I'm going to add five kilos this week, two and a half this week, five this week. Man, at the end of the block, I'm going to squat uh, 300 kilos for seven reps. This is going to be awesome. But it never works out, right? We make it through maybe the first day of the first week or maybe the first week. We've done too much volume. We can't recover from it. And we end up finding ourselves just being frustrated, ripping up the training block and, and trying to, you know, do something else. And, you know, that's when we say, you know, we say something stupid like, oh, I'm going to run, uh, you know, I'm just going to start maxing every day or although that's has under some circumstances, you know, we've collected some data on that, but it's certainly not an all the time thing. And uh, so with this case, an intro cycle is almost always a good idea. You're not going to get weaker from having one week of lower volume and one week of low RPs. It's a model for success is what it is. Yeah. 
So as we know, when we jump into something that's too much and unaccustomed stimulus, we have an excessive amount of damage. And then we, we repeat the following week and we have an, a lesser amount of damage. That's called the repeated dot effect. When you repeat a bout of exercise, you get an effect of less damage, right? Less soreness, less fatigue. That's what an introductory week does. So there's no reason not to do that. I'll structure the introductory week maybe in a, for a volume block. I'll try to keep the RPs five or less. That's really light. And I'll keep the intensities about 10% lower than what I'm going to in the first week of the block. Uh, for an intensity block, maybe keep the RPEs between 5 and 7, uh, and then keep the intensities 5 to 10% lower in the intro week, and then run a taper as we discussed before. Again, a volume block doesn't have to be four weeks. That's just one example. But I always have an intro cycle, the main block, and then a taper on the outside of that. If there's not a taper below that, then I run that intra cycle intro I was talking about, um, and then go and continue the block and then taper after it's done. But always, 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 the hardest thing, to, the easy thing to do is to go in the gym and crush it. I'm going to max out today. I'm going to do 10 sets of 10. That's easy. The hard thing to do is to say, even though I know I did this weight for 12 reps two weeks ago on my plus set or AMRAP set, I'm going to do three sets of four with it on my intro week this week, and I'm going to be an adult enough to say that's okay. Uh, and do my intro week. So that that's how I would look at it. No, I think that's brilliant. I think that relates really well to the kind of the volume you were talking about where people are like, oh, I want to do more and more and more. And they don't allow right. themselves to kind of, I, I think of it as like a snowball effect. That intro week is kind of the, the, the start of the snowball. And then over time, you're accumulating more and more. And then you're kind of on a roll. And then you need to maybe you fall off the cliff and you need to have that the the yep. end deload or, or the end taper and then you start again you start building up again and this like you said the body will adapt over time and you're just setting up for success so i think that that's brilliant i think as a concept people should really take that away kind of um that it is important to always have those periods where you do back off where you do let things kind of recover so you can keep progressing for longer um so i wanted to know mike uh, we talked a lot about kind of daily undulating periodization and i wanted to know kind of if there's anything else you're working on on the side any kind of um kind of lines of research any current projects you're working on that are kind of going to be interesting that people want to know about that you'd kind of want to touch on if you can sure man i i appreciate the uh the question so obviously we've done a lot like you said with programming um and we've been doing a ton over the past few years with rpe um, I've been fortunate enough to, to work with Eric Helms quite a bit, and we've collaborated on quite a few projects. I'm sure everybody's familiar with him. And uh, so we've done a lot with RPE and looked at also relationships between velocity and RPE um, and incorporating autoregulation within a periodized construct. One thing I always try to get across on autoregulation is autoregulation is not a standalone training strategy, right? You can't just say, I'm, I'm doing autoregulation. That doesn't mean anything. But what it is, it's a way to either adjust training load, it's a way to choose training session, um, it's a way to progress training load, or it's a way to auto-regulate volume within a periodized construct. So those are the four ways that I look at auto-regulation. Eric and I have multiple papers in review right now looking at auto-regulating volume or the efficacy, uh, the accuracy of people's ability to use RPE. Um, so we're working on that, and we have quite a few other things coming up that we're, we're doing together on that. Uh, additionally, one thing that I think is important is there's been that coincides with RPE is velocity-based training. And there's been a lot of people working on velocity-based training, which I think is an excellent, uh, fantastic thing to do. That's also another thing as well that um, velocity-based training, like autoregulation, you still need to periodize your training. So you might have an undulating programming strategy with the same 
repetition scheme, let's say 10, 8, 6 throughout the week. But instead of programming a percentage or programming an RPE, you're programming a velocity zone, but you're still changing the repetitions. So it's still undulating programming and velocity-based training is just a, it's a way to prescribe load within a periodized construct. So it's, it's just another lesson in understanding things conceptually, understanding that ideas aren't mutually exclusive. You start at the most basic. The most basic is your programming, where your most basic is things like adherence to training and so forth. But once we get past that stage, our programming and periodization construct, and then how do we want to assign load? We can assign percentage 1RM. We can assign with RPE. We can assign with velocity. We can assign with all of them. Yeah. Right? We can have a percentage of 1RM. This is the other thing we work on as well. We can have a percentage of 1RM, but have an RPE range and use that our ideas to stay with that percentage. But if we fall outside of that range, then adjust load back to it. Anyways, with RPE and with velocity, velocity-based training, if you and I are going to both use velocity-based training, Steve, and we're going to be on the same program, um, but we say, hey, on, on Monday, we're going to do three sets of five, and we're going to maintain between a 0.55 and 0.60 uh, uh, meters per second um, you know, throughout uh, uh, the last repetition, which should be a pretty low RPE. But if we're going to do that, that's fine, but that's going to be different intensities. There's, there's no way that we're going to have the exact same velocity at the exact same percentage of one around. Mm -hmm. So the question is, what factors affect an individual's velocity? So we found uh, in a previous paper that at a, a one RM, a max lift, experienced lifters have a slower velocity than novice lifters. But if we look at the velocity profile all the way from, let's say, 30% up to 1RM, do things like training age and then also limb lengths, meaning femur length and total height, affect velocity? So that's one thing that we're investigating now. My student, Dan Cook, is doing his thesis, and we're, we're looking at, at, the, at the totality of uh, this range. What are the factors that affect velocity? And if, if, if those things do seem to affect velocity, are 1RM prediction equations um, going to be effective by incorporating things like limb length and training age into the equation. I don't know if they're going to be, but we'll find out. Um, so I think that will help to individualize velocity-based training mm -hmm. and individualize velocity profile. We're also going to take RPE, and you can see what factors. We know that training age affects RPE, uh, but do other things also affect an individual's RPE other than just their skill at using the scale? Um, then we can individualize all of these matters uh, into somebody's training, their, their load prescription as well. So we're doing that now. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough, this is a little outside of the, the box of this, I was fortunate enough with Eric to uh, work on um, a paper with a group from Ohio State. Um, they reached out to us and asked us if we would help adapt some of our autoregulation and periodization models to work in exercise oncology. Um, and there was a, a group there, um, Kieran Farman and Dr. Brian Folk, just, just fantastic individuals. They do work with cancer patients and resistance oh, yeah. training. So we published a review paper there. Uh, looking at our ability to use autoregulation within that because I think for exercise oncology there's such a heterogeneous population and there's so much fatigue day to day based upon treatments that autoregulation could be a great strategy. So uh, we've we've started to do some stuff here um, in Boca Raton where FAU is located to talk to some uh, um, kind of clinical operations around the area and see if we have access to patients to start getting into that realm a little bit. Uh, after that, um, we're always doing stuff. We have a excellent biochemistry lab. Uh, my colleague in the office next to me here, he's the director of that. And, and uh, so we're looking at um, some neurotrophins as well, uh, things like BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor and its response to exercise, uh, along with some other you know, enzymes and hormones. So always trying to look at the mechanisms as well. 
Um, but our department is really has a lot of great research in addition to just what we do. Um, so there's quite a bit of stuff going on here. So I know that was, again, a little long-winded. I, I can tend to be, but uh, hopefully that was helpful. I guess the main thing for our audience is looking at the, the limb lengths and training age and how those affect velocity. No, I think that's it's super exciting and it's just great that there is so much this i mean it's great that you're there doing the research and it's going to be helping people get uh, better performance i think it's really really interesting and i and i was interested actually with the velocity based training i guess is that mostly focused on kind of big compound lifts on power lifters and how would you go about yeah. measuring that as well so yeah it's definitely focused on the on the compound lifts if um if you're going to um, hook up a linear position transducer to a bar for curls, you're, you're trying way too hard. Yeah. Um, you're thinking way too much. Just pick up the bar, do some curls somewhere between 6 and 15 reps and put the bar down and you'll be fine. Um, you know, so sometimes, sometimes, you know, it's so great. There's so many things out there and we talk so much. Uh, but sometimes, you know what, just decrease volume, increase intensity over time, lift weights, yeah. and you're, you're going to make progress, right? Um, but yeah, that velocity-based training would be used for the main lifts. And let's say it's used a lot in a team sport setting. Let's say like American football, um, they use it quite a bit. Um, I, I think um, normal football um, or soccer for oh, those yeah. in the U.S., uh, I think it's being used more and more. Um, and it's a way to monitor fatigue and to monitor, monitor training load really in season. So that would be, we would say, um, there's a few ways to do this. One, there could be a velocity stop, right, where – you would say we're going to do singles on the deadlift at um, 85%. And once our velocity drops below, um, you know, 0.3 meters per second, uh, we're going to stop uh, deadlifting for the day. That would be a way to auto-regulate volume. Uh, some days you might get more volume than others, and that would allow you, based upon kind of your energy levels, to be able to auto-regulate that volume. It would also allow you to stop before your technique breaks down. Um, but you could do the same thing with RPE. For RPE, you could say I'm going to have an RPE, uh, and I'm going to have an RPE of eight. And once I go above RPE eight, I'm going to stop. Um, so you could do the same thing with that. Um, if I look at velocity and RPE, if I had to choose one, I actually prefer RPE because velocity can't take into account things like uh, technique breakdown. Um, whereas a lifter can can have a technique breakdown or have a slow velocity, but they can know in their head that was my fault. I can do better. Uh, and so forth. So I, ideally, they're used in conjunction. Okay. Uh, but if I, I would prefer if I only had one. If as long as the person is good with RP, I would prefer to have RP. The person can also be bad with RP, which is another programming uh, strategy that that's that would be important to discuss. But you could also say for somebody, um, you're going to do sets of uh, five at uh, 75% on the squat, and um, you know. Uh, but and that's a good starting point. However, I don't want your last repetition velocity to fall below 0.30 meters per second. So if it does, that means you need to decrease the load or to maintain that range. Or if it does, that means you go ahead and you stop for that day, another way to auto-regulate volume. Uh, so there are a lot of ways to, to be able to utilize that uh, velocity-based training. And But I, I think these ideas also, again, can be used in conjunction with each other. Mm -hmm. I guess the velocity-based training is very... Uh, is RP is much easier for just the general population to be able to use and take away, whereas the velocity base is very much kind of maybe yes. research or like sports teams where they've got that equipment available. Exactly. That's the thing. There's a couple more points on that. And in terms of RP, I think that's really the attraction to the scale and why it's becoming used so widely. And of course, anytime we talk about RP, we've done research on it here, but credit needs to be given to Mike Teixeira, who yeah. uh, really you know came up with this concept uh, 
yes, our laboratory, you know, and, and, and Eric collaborated with us on, on this, was the first to publish a scale in the scientific literature. But if it wasn't for Mike, we never would have conducted that research. So um, that was his brainchild, you know, back in 07, 08 when he wrote the RTS manual. Um, I forgot where we were. I went on to, to Mike there for a second. Um, just basically. Oh, the, 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 the attractiveness yeah. of the scale. Yeah. So uh, I think it's definitely attractive because it simply doesn't cost anything. Yeah. So any, everybody can use it. Everybody can adapt it. You can find it, you know, online for free. And, and people can also, um, you know, kind of tweak it to meet their own needs and their own training and how they're using it. And, and that's really the advantage of it. The scale itself is objective, but the rating is subjective. Yeah. And I actually think that's a benefit. Because you can take things into account like, hey, I had a technique breakdown, as we said, I can do a little bit better. Or I just wasn't that focused. Um, you know, if you have uh, six sets of four and then the last set is an AMRAP set or a plus set, well, on the first five sets, you might be focused. But on that last set, you're going to turn up the music a little louder. You're going to get a little bit more engaged. So if you recorded an RP of eight on all the other sets... Well, I guarantee you, you're probably going to get, you know, three or four extra reps on the plus set when you get a little bit excited. So you can take that into account in your RPE, whereas in velocity, you can't necessarily do that. Yeah. No, I think um, that's really important because I, well, it's interesting you said that because there's a recent discussion in one of the, the groups I run on Facebook and someone was saying how do people ever feel like they, in their head, they haven't hit that RPE, but they're kind of struggling to kind of get the reps. And I was saying how part of when I'm doing things I have to refocus even though like I might be at an RPE 5 but I feel like I'm at an 8 when I, unless I focus and then I get back in the zone and then I can get the reps again especially at the higher repetitions um, are there common things you see like that happening or do you have like a if you were to give someone who is a bit newer to RPE or someone who's been using it but doesn't feel very confident with it any kind of tips to kind of get a better grasp Yep, I'm taking some notes right here. So a few things, and, and everything that you said, we've looked at or other people have looked at, and I think is very valid in the literature as well. Um, and then I'll, I'll get to um, uh, grasp RP. I'm sorry, I just don't want to forget anything. Um, in terms of, so a few things you said there. RP is much harder to gauge on higher rep sets, right? Because now you have met metabolic fatigue coming into play. Um, if you're like me, you might have cardiovascular fatigue coming into play. Uh, so it depends. You have other things that are kind of interfering with that. Whereas if you do one repetition at 90%, if you're an experienced lifter, you're going to be able to gauge pretty much on the money how many repetitions that you have left. So if you're doing a set, though, of, of 10 or 12 at 65 70%, you know, we've seen a lot from data that we've collected in our lab here that sometimes people will say, hey, I'm at an 8 RPE, and then they end up doing 5 more. Or they say they're at a 5 RPE um, when they're at, let's say they've only done 6 reps, but then on rep 8, metabolic fatigue, cardiovascular fatigue starts to hit in, and on rep 9, they're done. Yeah. So it, it's so much harder to gauge on that. Um, so there are a lot more limitations when we get into doing that. Also, the farther you, away are, you are away from failure, the harder it is to gauge RP. So if I ask you to do two reps at 70% and then give me an RP, there's no way. Mm -hmm. right? You can't say, oh, I can do exactly you know, <laughs> nine, more, nine more reps. Right? That's why actually our scale um, below five, it doesn't quantify repetitions in reserve. It just quantifies effort. Yeah. Um, because if so, I don't really record RPEs of one, two, three, and four. I just say less than five. Yeah. Um, and it allows me to, to get a gauge of that. Um, so, but tips for people that to grasp RP, 
RP or, or ability to use it definitely increases with training experience. Um, so the, not only more trained you are, but the, the more exposure you have to the scale, you will get better at it. So what I do with my clients is if they don't have skill with RPE yet, I don't use it to progress load or to prescribe load, but I have them record it on the last set of every exercise. And I have them record it in their spreadsheet when they send it back to me every week. And then I have them take a video of that set on the main list. And I, re I watch the video and I record my own RP. And I don't tell them what it is yet because I don't want it to influence them. Yeah. But I just record and I collect data for a while for a few training blocks. And then I see where they are. And then once they start to match up enough, that's when I start to use RP just a little bit to help dictate things a little bit more. Sometimes if they have an AMRAP or a plus set, I'll have them record an RP on the previous set. And then they can do an AMRAP and see if it matches up. But again, the limitations of that are you're going to be a little bit more excitable on the AMRAP set or the plus set than you are on the set before. So if they record an RP on the set before of seven, um, I might count that as like a six. Yeah. Um, and then on the AMRAP set, see where they get and, and kind of match it up from there. So those are all strategies to use it um, and to get better with it. But just practice um, and then recording video, um, looking at it yourself. You can also record a mid-set RPE. Um, and say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on a set of failure at 70% and I'm going to record an RP. But again, the limitations with that are higher rep sets, they're not as good. So you might want to do it on 90%. But if you're having to actively think of your RP in your head while you're doing a set of 90% to failure, which is going to be, you know, somewhere between two and four reps, that might take away from your performance yeah. for the set. So um, the first strategies, first strategies I mentioned are, are what I would do. But it'll take time. But once you get good with it, it's an amazing tool to use. Um, and even once you're good with it, it doesn't mean you're, you're accurate hundred percent of the time. Yeah. You know, I recorded RPs when I trained this morning, I, I'm sure, you know, it, I said it was, I said one set was a seven. That doesn't mean that it was exactly correct, but kind of the, the gist of how I would go about having somebody improve a learning curve on RP. No, I think that's brilliant. I, I really want people to take away that you said, even yourself, you are Mr. Well, I, I, you won't like it. You're Mr. DUP and you don't even know kind of your exact kind of RPEs, which is a big aspect of your training. And so I, I've had clients before who I've given them an eight RP and they're like, how do I know exactly I'm an eight RP? I'm like, it doesn't matter that you absolutely know you're eight, like you don't have to be exactly that, but if you're in the ballpark, that's what matters. Like we're trying to make sure exactly. you're not at failure and you're actually pushing quite hard. Um, so I and, think that's and, great. Yeah, and that's the benefit of having a range. If you tell somebody you're gonna do the set to an exactly an eight RPE, well, you're going to be switching load every single set. Um, so I'll give a range of, let's say, six to eight, and I'll say you want a sweet spot of seven. But as long as you hit within the range, you're good. And uh, so, yeah, otherwise you're going to be switching load all over the place. But like you said, once you get to the point where you're within a margin of error that's acceptable, you're fine. Awesome. No, that's brilliant. Yeah. And I, I just want to kind of close it there and just say a, a massive thank you, Mike, for taking the time to come on and share your wisdom and uh, i know you're quite elusive online i think i sent you a, a friend request i was going to bring this up a friend request about two years ago on facebook and I, was like, <laughs> I think i might have even messaged you it'll be in like your spam filters somewhere um so if people can't get hold of you kind of on facebook and things where cat where do you think is the best place for them to kind of find your stuff um i know you're doing work with shredded by science so um, you've got some fantastic kind of you've done courses with like you're part of the course you're part, part of the curriculum so yeah where yes. can people find more uh first i i have it's somewhere like i actually got a message from from facebook recently this is the only social media i have um and uh that i, I hit my friend request limit and so i <laughs> 
I, I guess I think because I haven't checked them in a long time. Um, it's probably I probably should because then you know it, it's you know I joke about that, but it's probably not a good thing because then I would have gotten to know you years ago and and correspond and so forth and, and and other people like that. Actually, I'll tell you what I'll delete Helms and add you because then I don't have to talk to you anymore. Um, but uh, in terms of finding me, I, I do have a, a personal Facebook page. So I'll try to get through and clean that up. So if somebody wants to connect on there. Um, but yeah, Shredded by Science is, is one of the places, you know, um, we had just mentioned this and, and uh, before we started and we were chatting briefly and, and um, I feel comfortable bringing it up because we agreed, uh, you know, Luke Johnson who runs Shredded by Science and then Lawrence Judd who's, you know, the number two in command as some of the greatest guys that I've really ever uh, kind of ever gotten to know. Uh, they've been so good to me over the past few years and, and they brought Eric Helms and I in to work with the Shredded by Science Academy and we're really proud of that content. Um, so if you go and check those guys out, uh, they really do a great job. Uh, so, you know, all the credit to them for what they've been able to put out there. Um, lastly, if I have uh, one more minute to, um, to plug something else, um, uh, along with uh, Eric Combs, who I've mentioned, uh, and Greg Knuckles, we're launching um, something called uh, Mass or uh, yes. Monthly monthly Applications in Strength Sport. Um, that'll be coming uh, everybody's way pretty soon. Um, no uh, specific dates or, or two more details uh, uh, right now, um, but it will be a research review that's focused on strength sport and it's something that we're very, very proud of and we've been working hard on. Um, so when that does come your way, hopefully um, you guys will see it. I know those guys have pretty big social media following, uh, so hopefully it gets out there. But that and then the guys at SBS, other than that, um, you know, look, check us out in PubMed every once in a while, see if we have a new paper. Um, ResearchGate, we're on there if you're interested in looking at those. Um, and if you're in uh, the South Florida area, um, we have a pretty good training lab here at FAU. You're always welcome to come by. But uh, thanks, Steve. I, I very much appreciate the uh, opportunity to come on and chat today. No, yeah, thank you so much. And now I want to go to Florida even more because you've just offered people to go to your training facility. And I, I love Florida anyway. It's a place I've been to many times. So, uh, um, yeah, thank you so much. And I can only concur with the uh, shredded by science things. I've been to those conferences before. Definitely recommend people who are interested in this sort of thing. Definitely make sure you're free in July to go and make sure you get to that. And yeah, just again, thank you. And thank you to everyone for listening in um, and bearing with us. So cheers, guys. Take care. Awesome.